So, Jim Gordon, welcome to the new school. Thank you. Great, great to be part of a new school. Always. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Jim, I, I was reflecting, I think we've known each other for at least 25 years. And Closer my, to 35. Was it 35, really? <laughs> at least and 30. My yeah. first memory of meeting you, and again, this fades into the mists of time, but I think I was told to meet you by a mutual friend of ours named Rick Carlson. And I think you had a National Institute of Mental Health postdoctoral fellowship or post a fellowship or something? I was a research psychiatrist at the NIMH. Yeah. You were a research After psychiatrist? After I finished my residency, I went that, there. Yeah. yeah. And so I showed up at the National Institutes of Mental Health, and I remember we went to lunch in the cafeteria there. And I think that at that time I had recently become a vegetarian and was filled with, you know, virtuous thoughts about being a vegetarian and, and how health-promoting this was. And I sat down with you and we began to talk, and you allowed us how your guru had recently put you on a steak and champagne diet, right. if, if memory serves me yes, well. That's right. And that, that moment was uh, 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 sort of crystallized in my mind as one of those teachable moments where somebody that I was very inclined to admire had a, a quite different perspective on what might be useful. And is this a, an accurate memory? This is extremely accurate. Yeah. I remember so we sat there for a couple hours yeah. in that, in one of the, uh, Charles was talking, one of those, it was a, definitely a sick building, the National Institute of Mental Health building in Rockville, Maryland. Right. And we sat there and talked for a couple hours in the basement. Yeah, I, I had just been on that fast. Right. Now, you've just written a book uh, called Unstuck, Your Guide to the Seven-Stage Journey Out of Depression, um, which I spent some time with this weekend, and I think it is an extraordinary book. There are quotes and praise of it uh, from Deepak Chopra and Christian Northrup, Dean Ornish, Mark Hyman, who uh, uh, edits Alternative Therapies, Andy Weil, Robert Coles, and Mary Pfeiffer. Um, and... Um, like you, I've been intrigued with depression for many years, but in nowhere near the depth that you have explored it. Um, so why don't we start just by, um, by asking you, um, for all the people who may hear you uh, on the, the recording of this conversation, uh, if, if someone is depressed... Uh, what do you recommend? What do you suggest? Well, I, I think the, 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 first, the first thing I try to convey, or I, I do convey in Unstuck, and that I convey with people call me up or uh, if we're just talking to a group like this, is um, depression's not a disease. This is not a sentence. This is not, uh, this is not the end. It's a beginning. And that the signs and symptoms of depression are a, a kind of signal, alarms, that are saying your life is out of balance. And maybe physiologically, psychologically, socially, spiritually, or all of the above and more. And that it is possible to discover what those imbalances are. It's possible to right those imbalances. And in undertaking that process, and, and I always you know, think of the metaphor of the journey, and going on that journey, you can heal yourself and become more healthy, more whole, 
than you ever have been. So that's what I convey right from the get-go on the phone with people, in the book, and in any discussion of it. When I looked at your website, you are uh, the founder and director of the Center for Mind-Body Medicine in Washington, a graduate of Harvard, clinical professor in the departments of psychiatry and family medicine at Georgetown University School of Medicine, and the former chair of the White House Commission on Complementary and Alternative Medical Policy. Uh, and you've written for the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Atlantic, and you're also the author of uh, Manifesto for a New Medicine and 10 other books. Um, when I look at the website, and I spent some time on the website this weekend also, what really struck me, and, and tell me if I have this right, because this is my analysis of it, is that uh, you've taken uh, three decades and more of experience with integrative medicine, and you've split it basically into two pieces. One is the mind-body medicine professional training, and the other is the food as medicine professional training. And then on the website, there are four columns, and those two are the central columns. And then on the left, you have your work on trauma mm -hmm. uh, in Gaza and Israel and Kosovo mm -hmm. with post-9-11 firefighters and all kinds of other people like that. And uh, on the right, you have your cancer guides work. Mm -hmm. And so and now you have the depression book. And what strikes me is that you've taken a lifetime of thinking both about the broad public health principles of this and also about the most refined individualization of this. And you've described the broad principles in the mind-body health training and the um, uh, food, as, uh, 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 food as medicine training. And then you apply them on the one hand to public, worth, public health work on trauma and on the other hand with cancer guides to clinical work with cancer. So is that a fair description of your strategy? I, I like, I, one of the reasons I like to talk to you is because you help me, uh, you help me see myself as more organized <laughs> than, I, <laughs> than I ordinarily uh -huh. feel. But uh -huh. yes, that, that's right. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And what's very interesting about the uh, Unstuck book is that uh, there's a deep relationship between your work with depression and your work with trauma. Uh, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Now, just for a moment, because I want to come back to that, but one of the things I've always wondered about is um, in our work with cancer, and you know this very well from your decades of contribution to uh, the cancer field, uh, people are frequently uh, diagnosed with depression uh, well in advance of their cancer diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And as I understand, it is still an unresolved question whether uh, this is a, a biological precursor of the illness uh, or, um, or, in other words, which came first, the chicken or the edge? Is it a biological precursor of the illness or uh, is the cancer in some biological way that we also don't quite understand yet contributing to the depression? The depression is an expression of the cancer process already underway. Do you have any... Uh, understanding about the status of depression and cancer? <laughs> I, you know, I would agree with what you said. My, my impression, and my impression reading the literature, is that 
periods, and I'd be interested to hear what you say, the periods of extended stress, often including depression. And we now know that stress is probably the major issue in, in depression, just a difficulty dealing with extremely prolonged stress of one kind or another is, is quite central to sort of the biology or psychobiology of depression. But I think that extended periods of stress seem to be um, the matrix in which cancer more easily develops. And I, and I think it's, but it seems to go both ways because people who seem, you know, perfectly uh, okay, you know, as you know, may have, uh, they may get depressed even though there doesn't seem to be major stress and then cancers are discovered soon mm -hmm. afterwards. Pancreatic cancers mm -hmm. are an, an obvious example. Mm -hmm. So I don't, I don't know. I think that's it's really uh, an interesting mm -hmm. uh, kind of complex relationship. But if, everything we know about the biology of depression indicates that the longer you are depressed, the more likely you are mm -hmm. to have a wide variety of, of illnesses and conditions, and that it probably you probably become more vulnerable to it as time goes on, as you as you get older and have had other insults and and other difficulties in your life. I mean, the for example, the relationship between depression and heart disease is pretty clear in terms of depression being a kind of soil in which heart disease flourishes. And then those people who've had heart attacks who are depressed are much more likely to die from their heart disease mm -hmm. than those who are not. And I, I would think that since some of the same you know, biological markers are there, the cytok cytokine levels, for example, in and you know, uh, lack of activity of natural killer cells in uh, cancer and often enough in depression, that there is some kind of fundamental relationship. I just don't know exactly what it is. Now, the, the kind of depression that you're talking about in Unstuck, uh, is there any differentiation in your mind between a unipolar tendency toward depression and bipolar illness? Yeah, I, I think that the... the, the Bipolar illness, there's more of it. There, there's some genetic basis for, or some correlation. Uh, some you know the, in some of the identical twin studies, that it there is point at the fact that there is some genetic predisposition. Uh, I think the predisposition is stronger with bipolar disorder than it is with unipolar depression. But the question is, how, you know, how do you work with that predisposition? I mean, there are also predispositions to being artistic or athletic, and, and it's also, um, it's not just in the realm of pathology. Mm -hmm. And the question is, what do we make of it, and how do we deal with it from mm -hmm. the beginning? I think the thing with bipolar disorder that makes it more difficult is, aside from the genetic predisposition and the, perhaps the sort of stronger um, biological um, base for it is that it's very hard to get the attention of people with bipolar disorder, particularly when they're manic. Mm -hmm. They don't listen to anybody because they think they have all the answers. Mm -hmm. I've worked using the same method as Unstuck. I've worked with several people who are very significantly bipolar. Mm -hmm. So, But one difficulty is it's hard to get their attention and the other is that they so often get hospitalized. Mm -hmm. Because and at that point they enter the system, and they get on medication, and so it becomes and they and they scare them. Um, people feel I, I mean, even people with depression 
uh, tend to feel, I can't go off the medication. So they're going down a particular track. And with bipolar disorder, the tracks are um, you know, more, uh, you know, the, the, the boundaries to those tracks are firmer, and it's harder to get out of it. Right. Now, early in Unstuck, you talk about the state of the evidence on uh, the impact of, uh, of, uh, of pharmaceuticals on depression. And you cite uh, a study which, if I remember accurately, compared uh, pharmaceutical treatment to behavioral interventions, mm -hmm. and there was a third arm with uh, both uh, behavioral and pharmaceuticals. And my memory is that the, that the, the pharmaceutical intervention really was no more effective than the cognitive behavioral intervention, right. and that the combined was slightly more exactly. uh, effective than either one alone. That's right. Uh, but it, that really creates the, uh, the science base for you then to say what was missing was an active uh, mind-body health intervention. Exactly. And that's what you offer in this exactly. book. Exactly. That, that, that's, yeah. that's exactly right. right. But that, you know, that's been known since the, the late 70s, early 80s, those studies on cognitive therapy comparing them to antidepressants. And there's never, those were, and people might say, well, that, those were an older class of antidepressants. But the older class is no less effective than, which is not terribly effective, no less effective than the newer class, the SSRIs like, like Prozac. So yeah, the, knowledge, the striking thing is um, there are these studies. Studies have also been done with interpersonal therapy, which is another kind of you know, brief psychotherapy that instead of focusing on behavior, focuses on the relationships between dysfunctional relationships and ways of thinking about relationships and depression. So you're, you're exactly right. So if these brief therapies can, are just about as good as drugs, what about if we add in all these other approaches, which many of which have also been demonstrated to be at least as good as antidepressants in relieving symptoms of depression? And that's what the book is about, is about creating that model of integrating a number of different approaches. And then I've been fascinated by the way you group those, because uh, uh, you've thought a lot, clearly, about using therapeutic work and integrative medicine, um, uh, both in public health as in work with trauma, uh, and as we said, with cancer and, and with uh, depression and with many other conditions. You've arrived at a, a particular way of grouping the intervention. So I'm working from memory now, but meditation is one of the first uh, mm -hmm. points that you mentioned. Um, I know exercise is another. Uh, you know, diet and nutrition is another area. Um, um, why don't you give us, uh, as you present it, when you're giving people an overview of the, let's again stick with depression, but you use it throughout all your different areas, what are the major... Uh, headings for the kind of interventions that help people sure. get unstuck? Well, I think the, the, the first thing is to say um, this is not a disease and uh, it is possible to move through it and learn from it. And I think that's crucial. People need to know that right from the get-go because there tends to be a very fatalistic attitude. So it's a question of giving hope and of saying to people, whether I'm saying it in person or I'm saying it as the author of a book they're reading, and I'm here with you. I'm here with you in two senses, at least. One is that I've been there. I've been seriously 
clinically depressed. Uh, and the other sense is that I'm going to walk with you and teach you what much of what you need to know to move through depression. So that's the context that, that I provide and begin with. And the emphasis there, and it's there in depression, but it's also uh, there in working with anybody else, is you can do something about it. Because the message, or at least the meta-message of giving people drugs is the drugs are going to do the job. And pretty much end of story. Or the drugs and maybe coming to see a therapist once a week or once every two weeks, that's going to do the job. Whereas I'm saying, oh, therapists can be enormously important. Drugs are a last resort, not a first choice. And in any case, whatever we're doing, you have a tremendous capacity to help yourself. And so I begin, I really begin with meditation and say that that's fundamental because the, um, what meditation can do, and I teach very simple, non-denominational meditation, any, but any tradition is, is, is appropriate. Um, and just saying, and not only saying, but showing people very simply that by sitting quietly and breathing deeply and perhaps saying to themselves, soft as they breathe in and belly as they breathe out and letting their belly be soft, that in four, three, four, five minutes, they can feel more relaxed. And the message is very clear. You can be more relaxed, even though you're feeling agitated and strung out and fearful, and you can do it for yourself, and you can do it whenever you want. So it's both important as a technique and a fundamental technique, but it's also important as a, uh, an example of the fact that everybody can do this. And so we teach it to people of, you know, from three or four years old on up to 83 or 84. Anybody can do it. The second thing about meditation is it's suggesting that there's a different attitude is possible. A little more perspective can be brought in. And that people, if you sit comfortably and quietly for a few minutes, you may think, you know, your thoughts may not be troubling you as much. It's not only that your body is more relaxed, you have a different attitude. So that's Meditation is, and I begin on this journey by, by teaching meditation. Uh, the second piece has to do with looking at possible physical causes, which is a whole separate piece. Uh, depression's not a disease, but lots of diseases can cause depression. Such and, as? Well, cancer, heart right. disease, multiple sclerosis, diabetes, many of the rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, er lupus erythematosus, Many of the most common, or those last are not as common, but many of the most common diseases by mechanisms, some of which we know and some of which we don't yet, can cause depression or are accompanied by depression. So you have to make sure you don't have one of those that needs to be addressed. And then there are more subtle conditions uh, that, I, that I talk about too. For example, a lot of people are hypothyroid even though their thyroid hormone levels are normal, the thyroid-stimulating hormone may be elevated, or sometimes even thyroid-stimulating hormone is not elevated, but people are uh, functionally hypothyroid. That means that they're acting as if they're hypothyroid. They have all the symptoms. So you need to make sure that's not the case. Uh, people are sensitive to foods. I mean, because of, you know, of situations that you know you know very well in terms of what's gone on in the environment 
the amount of antibiotics we've taken in, uh, the chronic stress, our uh, gastrointestinal tract becomes leaky. And when that was first talked about, most doctors thought that was, as you may remember, thought this was, to this was totally crazy. But in fact, it, it turns out that there's now very good evidence published in very good journals that the spaces in between the cells and the gut get larger, and proteins that shouldn't be going through that space go through that space, and they stimulate reactions anywhere in the body. And those reactions can create a variety of symptoms, depression being one. So there are all these things that need to be looked at. Heavy metal toxicity, too much lead, too much mercury, too much arsenic, for example, all can produce depression. By the way, does the leaky gut contribute to food allergies in that food substances that haven't been fully worked through escape into the bloodstream? I, I just don't know the biology. In other words, is, is part of the issue of food allergies related to leaky gut or not? Well, there are different kinds of food allergies. Yeah. There are um, IgE-mediated, mm -hmm. which is one kind of immune globulin, mm -hmm. and those may not be related to leaky gut, right. but others that are mediated by an, another immune globulin called IgG mm -hmm. um, may well be mediated by the leaky gut. And when the gut gets better, people stop having those right. sensitivities. They're technically not allergies, they're sensitivities. Uh, but they may lose those sensitivities right. after a while. Speaking of this for a moment, and then I want to get back to this, but the new, newest issue of alternative therapies is devoted to autism. Have you seen it yet? I have not seen it. Well, it's fabulous. Ben, have you followed the new paradigm of autism research and treatment stuff that's been going on? Because to me, it's so, one of the most interesting yeah. areas, just because uh, Martha Herbert at Harvard and, uh, and a whole group of other people, and we've held a number of conferences on this here at Commonweal. But, you know, here's a situation where people thought for a long time that this was a completely genetic uh, condition. And it turns out that uh, not only is it not completely genetic, although there's a strong genetic predisposition, but that some autistic kids are recovering on biological therapies, mm -hmm. uh, including nutrition, detoxification, yes. yeah. and a whole set of other things. Yes. And very characteristic of a lot of autistic spectrum kids is a very badly compromised gut situation. Mm -hmm. And you can demonstrate that scientifically by looking at the gut. Mm -hmm. And many, many of these children have tremendous difficulty with bowel control and so forth. And if you take them off gluten and dairy or whatever it is, lo and behold, the gut heals up. And then, quote, paradoxically, uh, you know, the, uh, there's a diminishment in the autistic spectrum uh, symptoms. And the reason I mention this is because I originally came into this work looking at the role of nutrition in the learning and behavior disorders of children at yeah. Full Circle School out here, yeah. which we started in 72 and uh, 73. And uh, here, 35 uh, years later, uh, um, you know, Finally, the studies are coming out that the Feingold diet, food and chemical sensitivities, actually do make a difference in mm -hmm. hyperactivity mm -hmm. and, you know, so yeah. on. And there's this explosion of really strong work on autism. And so anyway, it's just a, a reflection on the leaky gut exactly. issue. Exactly, exactly. No, I think, I, think yeah. I mean, it's, it, we've, we've had a capacity to ignore the obvious right. for a long time. Right, right. And to deny it and right. to deny the observations right. of parents and, right. and others. Right. So going back to where we were, we, you were going through the list of the different physical right. 
aspects of depression and had gotten to uh, the issues of, of food and chemical sensitivity. Yeah, so I, you know, the, 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 the um, I think all, the, the way I approach it is if somebody doesn't have other physical symptoms, then, uh, you know, I don't necessarily do a, or recommend a sort of very large-scale diagnostic workup. But if they do, then you've got to start looking at some of these other potential causes that mm -hmm. are there. With food sensitivities, sometimes I will just start with, a, with an elimination diet. Uh, there's a, a girl I talk about in the book who's 12 years old who was having trouble with... Uh, she was angry at her parents. She was feeling depressed. She'd, she'd been... Uh, she was constipated, she couldn't sleep, uh, and the worst of the symptoms, particularly the anger and the depression, were just a few months old and maybe have been triggered by a, a head injury that she had. But the other symptoms, the constipation, uh, the difficulty sleeping, went back, as I took a history, back to eight months old when she stopped, her mother stopped breastfeeding her, and she went on milk. Mm. And her whole diet... Um, Virtually her whole diet was wheat, milk, and sugar. Hmm. So cereal with milk for breakfast, and a wheat cereal with milk for breakfast, and grilled cheese sandwiches for lunch, and fettuccine Alfredo at night, and ice cream in between. And simply doing something mechanical, manipulating her, or adjusting her head and neck, helped some. But then removing her, she knew, as soon as I, uh, I took the history, and I said, would you be willing to do an experiment with your diet? She got this terrified expression on her face. And she, she knew exactly what was coming. And uh, I said, she said, what? And I said, would you be willing to go off wheat and sugar and milk for three weeks? Because, you know, the, your whole diet is this. The symptoms, as you've heard your mom say, the symptoms have been going on since you were eight months old. You're miserable now. Uh, you're not, uh, even, I don't care that your pediatrician said it was fine to move your bowels twice a week. Your pediatrician is wrong. Human beings are not meant to do that. We're meant to move our bowels in a significant way every day. Um, I said, would you be willing to do this experiment for three weeks? It's up to you. And this is a girl who'd been taken, uh, told that she needed intensive psychotherapy for various adjustment problems and that she needed two antidepressants. Uh, one was to elevate her mood, and the other was to calm her down at night because she'd be too active and agitated. And her parents and she left the psychopharmacologist's office in tears, and then they came to see me. So that was the alternative, and so she looked at me and she said, two weeks. I said, okay, that's a deal. Within a week, it had all begun to turn around. Before she took the herbs, before she'd really gotten on the supplement regime that I was suggesting to her, she began to go to sleep in 10 minutes instead of an hour in 10 minutes. She began to move her bowels four times a week instead of twice a week. She, her mood started picking up. So sometimes you can just simply do it clinically and make a huge, and that's what I'm saying to the readers of the book, is that if you know, to, if, if this is something that's going on with you, if your diet is limited in certain ways, if you have stomach problems, if you're constipated, um, as well as depressed, then you really may want to look at some of these other things and eliminate the foods yourself. So I think this is really important to start, to start off with. Uh, and the girl didn't need intensive psychotherapy, and she certainly didn't need antidepressants. And within 
maybe three, four weeks, she was back at school. Instead of getting C's, she was getting A's again, and you know, she was getting along with her parents and playing soccer and doing whatever mm -hmm. else she did. Wonderful story. So, so you go on from the physical to what? Well, the physical, uh, I, I, the physical in another way is crucially important. Uh, the probably here's is, here's the list: exercise, meditation, guided imagery, right. self-expression through words, drawings, and movement, yoga, nutrition, and supplements, acupuncture, and herbal therapies, and a variety of spiritual practices. Right. That's, that's how it. You, that's the list. That's the list. And, and that list is also at the heart of your training in mind-body uh, medicine. Exactly. And it's at the heart of your cancer work and the heart of your, tra your trauma work. Mm -hmm. um, so what's interesting about this, for me, is how you organize it. Uh, did you give a lot of thought to what the main headings are as you've worked through this? Did it take you a while to get to this particular way of organizing it? Uh, I'm sure it did. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I'm sure, because for me, the, um, the, the work is the organizing. Uh, the techniques are techniques that I've used in, you know, used in many ways and that I learned gradually. And then, what I, so there are two things going on. One is I'm organizing how... I do it with individual people. And then the other piece of the organization is how we teach it to health professionals and patient advocates and others who are teachers who are going to do it with other people. And the, the work with individual people uh, from, for the last 25 years has always involved, in the beginning, a prescription that includes nutrition, Meditation of some kind, uh, both quiet and active, physical activity, and then sometimes some of these other. And I do Chinese medicine in my own practice, mm -hmm. so that was right there from the from the get go. And then bringing in some of these other techniques and approaches as they seemed appropriate, and working with an individual. In the training we do, and in Unstuck. I, I have taken a sort of another step in organizing and then put them in a sequence that, that, makes, it, that makes the most sense and is the, you know, relatively e or mm -hmm. easy for people to learn who are, who are interested. We were talking before uh, we started today, and I asked you if you were doing any work with the incoming Obama administration. And we were talking about whether this was a teachable moment uh, because of... Uh, uh, in effect, one of the key issues for our survival as a country is whether we can get health care right. And uh, it's no surprise to either of us that the current model uh, is utterly broken. Uh, you addressed this in, uh, you know, in your book, uh, Manifesto for a New Medicine. Uh, and as I mentioned before, you were the former chair of the White House Commission on Complementary and Alternative Medicine Policy. So I'd like to do a piece of imagery with you. Uh, okay. And here's my piece of imagery. Uh, it, is, uh, it is late January of the coming year. And you have been uh, invited to the White House. And uh, you are surprised and interested to have received this uh, invitation, but the president wants to meet with you. Uh, and you're told that you'll probably have 10 minutes with the president. And uh, you come in and you discover uh, that he has, 
He knows everything about you. He's very well briefed. He, uh, you know, knows that you studied with R.D. Lang in London. Uh, he knows that you uh, explored Rajneesh's work and wrote a book called The Golden Guru about Rajneesh. Uh, he knows uh, of your efforts to create therapeutic community with psychotic patients uh, early in your training. He knows about all your work with cancer. He knows all the risks you've taked taken in your career. And as a risk-taker himself, he is somewhat drawn to this uh, risk-taking pioneer of mind-body medicine. And he says to you, uh, Jim, uh, you know that, that we're facing this healthcare reform business. And I want to ask you, from a practical standpoint, uh, what could we do in healthcare reform based on your experience in complementary medicine that would reduce our costs and enhance outcomes? And what would you say to the president? This is unrehearsed. <laughs> what, what I would say is the, the, the absolute most important thing is to see self-awareness, self-care, and mutual help as completely central to all health care, to the training of all health professionals, and to the education of our children. Self-awareness, self-care, and, and, self, and mutual help. And mutual help. And that if it's turning absolutely inside out the medical model. Because the medical model, uh, as you know, Barack, um, the medical model... Mr. Mo President. <laughs> oh, Mr. Pre excuse me, Mr. President. <laughs> We're going to do a fist bump, too. <laughs> the medical model essentially says drugs and surgery are central and it, that everything else is peripheral. And it's not only that drugs and surgery are central, it's also that the... Um, the uh, the interaction that's implied is somebody up here is going to do something for somebody who is in need, something to them or for them. And what I'm saying is that's totally wrong-headed. It's, uh, although necessary at times, it is largely ineffective, counterproductive, and uh, extortionistically expensive for the vast variety of illnesses that, uh, that beset the American people. So we have to turn it around. We have to make, that's the outer circle. So he has a restless mind. He listens to this. But he has some other things that he wants to ask you about. Sure. He, he knows that of your work with returning Iraq uh, 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 veterans, and he knows of your work in Kosovo and with 9-11 responders and your work uh, in Gaza and Israel. And he's deeply concerned with the returning veterans, but he's also concerned that as he makes an effort to withdraw from Iraq, that the tremendous traumas of war that have been experienced in Iraq are addressed in whatever ways we can. And so he asks you, what have you learned from these trainings in Kosovo, in Iraq, I mean in Kosovo, in Israel, and in Gaza, that are practical things that uh, could be put into place to help heal the wounds of war? I've learned that it's possible to train very large numbers of people, including people who don't have strong backgrounds or perhaps any background in psychology to lead groups and to teach other people to create a safe situation in which people can heal themselves of the trauma that they're experiencing and get the support they need to continue their lives and put their lives back together. I've seen that even people who are in the middle of an ongoing conflict, as the people we work with in Gaza are, can improve significantly and continue to improve if you teach them 
ways to understand and help themselves, give them practical techniques, and create a situation in which they feel ongoing support. I've learned that people in the military are open to this because they're desperate mm -hmm. and that they are in many ways more open than people in academic medicine mm -hmm. uh, because they're much more concerned with results and that it's really interesting mm -hmm. to work with uh, people who are concerned with results. Mm -hmm. So th those, are, those would be the basic things and that if you, uh, if, if, if you were to give the go-ahead um, and if you were to encourage people in the military who are already interested in our work, we can work on a very large scale. We can train thousands of people to do this work. Mm -hmm. We can train people to do it not only on military bases and VA hospitals, but in the communities to which veterans are returning. And that if we don't do it, we are going to be facing a, uh, you know, a, a, I mean, the, call it an epidemic is mild, a kind of tsunami of, uh, of sort of distressed and aggravated and uh, desperate behavior and uh, horribly sort of wounded people, not only the people who are there, but the family members as they, as they come back and they relate to them. And that's what we're already seeing. So we've got to act now. And we've got to train very large numbers of people. And although we have to do the research, which you know, we're doing and the Army wants to do, uh, we can't wait for all the research results to be in because the longer, this is important too, the longer we wait, the more these patterns, the psychological patterns, the physiological patterns, the behavioral and the social patterns, the despair is going to, going to become more and more fixed. Being widely read, he also asks you about EMDR, which is the rapid eye movement approach to trauma relief. And what do you say? You know, I that? don't know a lot about I mean, I've, I've done it a little bit. Uh, I, I say that may be very helpful, and that may be something that, 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 that can be done, but that's something that requires a therapist to do it with people, and, and not everybody wants to do it. Yeah. I, think the, uh, I, I think there are many approaches that deal with trauma, EMDR, the eye movement, uh, somatic experiencing. Uh, there's a another Edna Foa has another kind of uh, uh, traumatic re-experiencing. I think those may be fine for some people, but most people don't want to talk about their trauma. They don't want to focus on it. They don't want to be labeled that way. Even if we take away all the stigma, you know, and all the career-ending, you know, dilemmas of talking about your being psychologically distressed, even if you take all that away, most people still don't want to talk about it. And what we have, and what I think is really crucial, is, is a model in which there's a paradox. By not pushing people to talk about trauma, by creating a safe place in which they're invited to talk about whatever they want to talk about, um, paradoxically, within two, three sessions, they're able to talk about trauma. Uh, there's an example uh, from... Kosovo, work in Kosovo and, and Bosnia in the, uh, that I always think of. Uh, and I was talking with the head of psychiatry in Sarajevo a year and a half after the war ended in Bosnia. And he told me that only four women had come to the largest psychiatric clinic by far in the country to talk about having been raped. Four years of war, year and a half after the war, 50,000 women at a conservative estimate were raped. They didn't want to come to talk about rape. In Kosovo, what we did is we set up women's groups and girls' groups. And all you had to do was be of the appropriate gender in the 
appropriate age, and to be interested in learning how to help yourself. And within two or three sessions, the girls and the women were talking about having been molested and raped because they felt safe and they were not being singled out for having been raped. So we have to create something that is out of the medical model, out of that box, that's really educational and that's uh, supportive and that's, in a sense, meditative and invite people to come in. And what we're finding already in the VA, uh, VA, uh, we, got, we recently got a Defense Department grant to study our, our method in the VA in New Orleans. And we're Veterans at Veterans Administration. I'm sorry? Veterans Administration. Veterans, yeah. In, the, yeah, in the Veterans yeah. Administration. Yeah. But the grant came from the Department of Defense, and those two are separate, right. unfortunately. They're yeah. very separate. So we're, we're working there, and in that Veterans Administration hospital, uh, two psychologists we've already trained have shifted their group model over to our model from a more psychodynamic, psychotherapeutic interpretations, uh, not so much educational, not teaching people all these techniques I talk about in Unstuck of you know meditation and guided imagery and exercise. And what they've found is many more people are coming to the groups and they're staying in the groups and they're going much deeper than when people were asking them lots of questions, just on their own because they feel safe. So I would say that's I mean, it's a small example, but I think it's an example of what's possible. So as I listen to you, the lessons, and, and let's drop our wonderful session with the president, at least for now, but uh, the lessons from your trauma work and your recommendations to the president about health care are, are deeply, deeply linked, right? There's this self-awareness, self-care, and what was the third? Mutual help. Mutual health, community, basically. Yes. No, yeah. it's very similar to what, to what you do in, in your the work cancer with people with program. cancer. Right, right. But again, your, your, your framing of it is so interesting. In other words, you're not only a, a really gifted psychiatrist and, and a, a pioneer of, of mind-body medicine, but, and you could have just done that, Jim, and you know, you, your recognition would have been tremendous, but there was a part of you, I mean, the part of you that I, I always found most amazing um, We've both been risk-takers, you know. I was told that our work in cancer would end my career and sink Commonweal, you know, so. Mm -hmm. and, but I felt compelled to do it. Um, uh, and, uh, and I remember when you started your work on integrating cancer therapies and you called me and told me that you were going to invite the alternative cancer therapy people and National Cancer Institute and so on. I said, Jim, you will never get them in the same room. And you said, well, I'm going to give it a try. And lo and behold, you did. You know, and you created this whole series of extraordinary conferences that really defined uh, integrative cancer therapies, which led to the creation of, of cancer guides. As a, uh, but the risk-taking that has amazed me most in many respects is what is it in you that has driven you out to some very risky situations in Kosovo and Gaza and so on when you could have just stayed home and done wonderful work in mind-body medicine, do you know, I mean, you're a reflective kind of guy. What is it in you that has sent you out into war zones to do this trauma work? Um, I don't know. <laughs> no, I, I, I mean, I, I do and I don't know. I mean, it's sort of making a joke out of it. I think part of it is, uh, at one level, 
I wanted to see if what we were doing here at home that was proving helpful for people with chronic illness, that was helping medical students deal with the stress of medical school, I wanted to see if we could work in the most difficult situations on the planet, or at least some of them. So it was a challenge. Um, a guy I became friendly with who was a New York City firefighter we worked with after 9-11. Uh, his name was a guy named Kevin Guy, as it happens. Big, tough, very funny guy. And we were doing, you know, he came to a, a retreat that we did, and he and I had spent time together talking about how are we going to work with the fire department. And one day he, uh, after we'd gotten to know each other a little, he said, Hey, Jim. He said, I get it. I said, what, what do you get, Kev? He said, you're just, you, you're just like us. You're just like me. I said, what do you mean? <laughs> I was sort of curious. What do you mean? He said, well, he said, you like to help people and you like to be where the action is. <laughs> <laughs> and that's true. There it is go. true. He got, he yeah. got me. He had yeah. my number. And, yeah. and I loved the firefighters because right. <laughs> yeah. that was, and admired them tremendously. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I do like that. Mm -hmm. So I want to go back in your history. By the way, I want to sit, I couldn't find anything, and I want to ask you this because I'm always curious. I, I find it helps me to know the beginning of people's life stories. So where were you born and raised? Uh, I was uh, born and raised in New York City, in Manhattan, on the Upper East Side. And my father was a surgeon, and my mother... Uh, when she worked, she worked in public relations. And where did you go to school? I went to Riverdale Country School, mm -hmm. Riverdale Country Day School up in the Bronx. So I took the bus up there every day and then subway later on. And I was t two years behind you at Dalton School. In oh, yeah. 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 And Just two blocks away from where I lived. Right. And were you, was your family both Jewish and Christian? No, no. They were, Gordon is a, is, a, is a Jewish name, uh, Maybe because there were some, there's stories. Okay. Maybe there was a Scots general who came through Russia who was okay. particularly dashing. So you were Christian or Jewish? I'm Jewish. You're Jewish. Okay. I'm Jewish okay. to begin with. All, okay. all Jewish. Okay. Um, okay. But my parents were very assimilated Jews. Mm -hmm. um, and they spoke some Yiddish, but they mm -hmm. were basically assimilated mm -hmm. Jews. And they were, mm -hmm. so we moved from being conservative and going to a synagogue. Mm -hmm. And when I was about eight, or nine, to my dismay, they switched me to a temple, mm -hmm. which was reformed. Uh, so we got switched out of a more juicy kind of Jewish uh, background to a, a more socially, uh, um, I don't know, upwardly mobile Jewish background. So Jewish. what were you like in eighth grade? At, uh, well, you know, I just had my 50th, God help me, 50th high school reunion, and my classmates tell me, that they expected me to be doing something like what I'm doing now, right from the get-go. And why uh, so? What? 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 Were well, you like? I, I think there were there were there were two things. I, I was I was. I mean, as I was sort of immodest talking about, it, I was always first in my class. You know, I skipped a grade and I was still first in my class. So I was always, you know, smart kid, and I was always a very good athlete. So I always, you know, looked and I edited the newspaper and I did all these things, um, but I was a little apart which they noticed. The, the, the other kids, they said, they said to me, you never belong to any particular group, any particular clique. And it was true. I, you know, I would hang out with the jocks some. I'd hang out with the brains and the nerds and the you know, people who never you know, did sports. And I was sort, of, was sort of interested in everybody, but I wasn't 
completely a part of any group. And I was always interested even then in um, difficult situations and potentially redemptive qualities in even people who seemed bad on the surface. I remember being, and also in the power of, when I was in eighth grade, I wrote a paper, uh, we had to do a no, seventh grade American history paper. I wrote on Franklin, Franklin Roosevelt's polio and how that changed him. So that, the notion that hardship, that people can deal with very great hardship and be transformed in a very positive way by it was right there in me from the time I was 11 years old. Hmm. So, you know, right on, right on up through. So Isn't I was, it interesting how the old saying about how life is lived going forward, but you only really see the patterns when you look back, that, it, you know, that a lot of the thing, that a lot of the patterns only really appear as we look back on our lives, that we don't really know going forward as clearly what those patterns turn out to be, I think. Yeah. And when I went to Harvard, I felt like I was breathing fresh air. Yeah. I was away from home. Uh, I was away from a school where you had to wear a tie. Mm. And it was this world where there were all these different people and all these different ideas. It was enormously exciting mm -hmm. to me. And, and from there to Harvard Medical School. Yeah, I studied English at Harvard. Mm -hmm. And uh, the same themes are there in the English, the papers I wrote in my thesis also. Same mm -hmm. themes of uh, dealing, but also dealing with uh, tragic situations, dealing with... Ins I wrote a... I, mean, I don't want to get into this too much. I wrote a, a, a paper uh, on Keats called The Insufficiency of Excellence. So huh. this gets to why do I go to these places when I, it's not enough to be really good at something. It's a question of what's really most important. So that excellence is like, it's almost like that's a shell that you have to move beyond in, in that, that known into the unknown and into the possibility of something entirely new and amazing happening for, one, for me as well as for other people to put myself in that place. But anyway, so I went to Harvard Medical School. I had no idea what to expect. And I deliberately had kept ignorant. And it was there between your second and third years that you had the experience with depression? Exactly. Yeah, I, take it, I, took, I took a year off after, after the second year because I wondered what I was doing there. It was, it was kind of in many ways boring to me. It was oppressive. Um, I learned something. I mean, I learned something in those first two years. I don't just mean biochemistry or physiology. I learned that I didn't like the way patients were being treated when I did see the way patients were treated in, in hospitals and that something was wrong. I didn't like the way I was treated. And I think for the first time as a you know, sort of conscious person, I understood what it was like to be treated badly. And that gave me a greater kinship with, you know, with, with everybody. I mean, it certainly was one of the things that got me more involved perhaps than I would have been with the civil rights movement. Uh, more, you know, sort of seeing the world from the point of view of people who are being badly treated, if not oppressed. Now, um, after you finished your medical training, you, you came out here and worked in the, uh, in the free clinic, the Haight-Ashbury Free Clinic. Right. I was an intern at Mount Zion in the summer of love. And right. again, you know, it was sort of wanted to be where the action was mm -hmm. and to help people. And it was great. Mm -hmm. It was just, uh, I had a wonderful time. Mount Zion was a great place mm -hmm. to do an internship. They mm -hmm. treated us well and mm -hmm. gave us four meals a day. And it was and before, 
It was before that you studied with Artie Lang or after? Yes. Uh, no, after. After. Mm -hmm. I had begun to read Lang before that. Mm -hmm. uh, Bob Coles had suggested I read Lang because mm -hmm. I was seeing him as a, as a therapist. He said, oh, you should read R.D. Lang. It's great. Mm -hmm. So I did. And then uh, when I went back to uh, New York to Albert Einstein for my residency in psychiatry, uh, I had a certain, I sort of imbibed Lang's whole perspective that madness was potentially a journey toward greater health and wholeness. And so in, uh, I guess, 1970, I went and spent two weeks in London with Lang and his colleagues, sort of, and the people who were living in Kingsley Hall, which is, you know, I'm sure you remember was a non, was a, a sort of a, a, a place, a big, a, a big home uh, it was kind of like a, low, a community center, but it was a place where psychotic people lived with their doctors and with other kinds of therapists, and where they were allowed to go through what Lang called the natural healing process that came with madness, with psychosis. So I studied with Lang, I studied with the people who were there, I learned from the patients, and then I, I wrote an article, which was a, a cover story for The Atlantic, and it came out just as I was... Uh, doing the second half of my year as a chief resident. And so I had all the, I had lots of people from the Bronx who wanted to be on this ward. I, I said, I would be, I'll, I'll be a chief resident if you let me treat psychotic people without drugs. And uh, to their great credit, uh, Joe Kramer, who was the head chair of the Department of Psychiatry, said, he said, yeah, he said, you're, you're good. I trust you. I'll let you do it. But if you fuck up, I'll cut your throat. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I said, okay, mm -hmm. fair enough. And so I did it. And because of the Atlantic article, we not only had people from the Bronx who wanted to come, people who had been patients in the hospital for years who heard about what we were doing as well, but also people from all over the country. Some of them started to come too. So I created this ward, and, uh, which went on for six months. I was only, mm -hmm. That was the mm -hmm. amount of time that I had mm -hmm. it for. And then there was this extraordinary piece of risk-taking, again, from my perspective, uh, uh, with your exploration of uh, Rajneesh and uh, the Rajneesh community and your book, The Golden Guru. Um, and talk a little about the experience with Rajneesh and what it meant in your life. Well, I, I started off... Um there, there were two pieces to it. One was I, I had a wonderful opportunity when I was at the National Institute of Mental Health where I, I first started working with runaway and homeless kids. But little by little, I, I became the expert on all things that were kind of strange. Uh, I did run a... a, a eventually, you, you wrote a piece on UFOs, too. Yes, I did yeah. that, too. That yeah. was after right. I left. Right. The NIMH would not have gone that right. far. Right, right. <laughs> but while I was at NIMH, I started with runaway and homeless kids and so-called alternative mental health services, mm -hmm. which is part of what mm -hmm. when we first met, what mm -hmm. I was looking mm -hmm. at. Uh, and I ran, created, and then ran a national program for runaway and homeless kids, which gave the kids respect said, you're not crazy, you're not delinquents, you're kids who are having a hard time trying to find your way, and we, NIMH, are going to support programs around the country that have that same kind of general philosophy. So we were able to actually do a government program, which maybe should I'd talk to the president about that too, mm -hmm. which actually respected what people in the communities were developing spontaneously. Anyway, after that, 
uh, I became, while I was doing that, simultaneously I met an Indian, Indian man, a mad Indian, who was an osteopath, acupuncturist, herbalist, homeopath, meditation master, Sham Singha. And he's the guy that put you on the he's steak He's the guy who put me diet. on the uh, yeah. uh, steak, boiled onions, and champagne. Oh, I forgot the diet. boiled onions. Yeah, you have to have the boiled onions to keep your bowels moving. Okay. Otherwise, you get constipated. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I started learning from him. I met this guy, and I thought, this is, uh, this is somebody, a kind of person I have never... I've read about this kind of person, you know, in uh, Paramahansa Yogananda's book, uh, uh, Autobiography of a Yogi. And I... You know, my patients in the South Bronx went to see curanderos and traditionally, and he had, he was somewhere out there in that realm. And yet he was, and he was very brilliant and uh, very sophisticated in many ways. And he was opening doors to me with meditations, including active, when I first met him, uh, he taught, uh, I brought him to the runaway house. And we cleared out the runaway house for a day. The kids were out. And here he was in a white silk gown with black hair flowing down to his shoulders, yellow kind of uh, uh, leonine eyes. And he was there in the runaway house with, you know, sort of uh, psychedelic drawings behind him on the wall. And there were about 25 of us. And he was doing these, teaching us these active meditations a fast, deep breathing, jumping up and down, shouting, shaking, all the stuff. And I began to have very powerful experiences. And I began to uh, just see the world in a much more relaxed way and sort of be much more intuitive. And just everything started to, my body was much looser. I was really very taken with him. And I think even on that first trip, he had a picture around his neck of this bald, bearded Indian guy. And I said, who's that? And he said, that's my guru, Shmuru. <laughs> I said, what? <laughs> he said, that's my sweetie. And then he said, you know, that's, that's, that's who it is. And, uh, but then he suggested, I, it turned out he was, that was Rajneesh, who was around his neck, and he suggested, oh, if you want to read his books, fine. Most important thing is do his meditation. Go to India and visit him if you want. So I started doing the meditations. I started reading the books. And I thought, this guy's flat out brilliant. The meditations are a kind of synthesis of Eastern mystical techniques and Western psychology, you know, humanistic psychology and bioenergetics and all these techniques. And uh, the books are these brilliant, brilliant glosses on the world's spiritual traditions. And on top of that, he's outrageous and funny and profane. and So I, I got really interested and um, continued to do the meditation. I would do 40 minutes of chaotic breathing every day. You know, very fast, deep breathing, standing up. Uh, quite exhausting, but, you know, also ultimately relaxing and liberating. So I was doing this. I was living on a farm, uh, working at NIMH. And eventually, um, I found a way to bring this into my job, too. And I said, because there were all these kids who were joining cults, uh, all the different new religious groups. So I thought, well, uh, why don't I make... And Congress was getting very upset because parents were getting in touch with them, saying, you've got to do something about this. These people are brainwashing my kids. They're Nazis, et cetera, et cetera. So I volunteered to be the one to study these groups. 
And uh, so I did, uh, as part of my job at NIMH, I met with parents who were upset, met with psychiatrists who were working with the kids, did participant observation in about 10 different groups, the Hare Krishnas, uh, uh, the, the Divine Light Mission, the Sun Young Moons Unification Church, the Love Family, a bunch of other groups. And, and, and then there were some groups that I liked more. And uh, Satchitananda's group was one, Muktananda's was another, Rajneesh was another, and the Zen groups were, were a fourth, and some of the Sufi groups. So I, I looked at all these groups, and eventually uh, I got another, uh, I sort of got a, um, a warrant from uh, NIMH to see about, because I wanted to do this, and they thought it was okay, and there was some money for it, to study ways that we, NIMH could work in India with different uh, researchers there who were studying traditional forms of healing, using EEGs to study yoga and meditation. This is the, about 1977, 78, 79. Was this with the Greens, too? or? or? Uh, that was after the Greens green, had been okay, there, yeah. Okay. But the Greens had done that, that, right, that yeah, pioneering yeah, yeah, work yeah, there before. Yeah. But these were, no, these were Indian researchers who were, yeah. who were there. So I went and I said, well, you know what I'd also like to do? The most interesting group is Rajneesh's group. And I'd like to spend some time with them. Well, um, that was fine with NIMH, but then Jonestown happened. Right. And you know, 911 people were killed. And the U.S. Uh, embassy was saying that they were worried that Rajneesh's group might be another Jonestown. So that ended my uh, government support of my going to work with Rajneesh. So I, I spent several weeks looking at other researchers, and I went and spent time with Rajneesh there. And that began um, my sort of a, a kind of deeper level of connection with the group. And then when they came back to the U.S., I began to uh, visit frequently in Oregon when they set up the community there. And originally it started as a part of my work at NIMH, and then I got a commission from The Atlantic to do a piece on Rajneesh. And the piece kept getting, uh, and then The Atlantic, for complicated and sort of interesting reasons, decided they didn't want to publish a piece on, on Rajneesh. He was the, the owner at the time, was, uh, was thought it, didn't want to do it. Um, so I just kept writing. And I wound up turning it into a book. And I kept going back and back and uh, having a couple of interviews with Rajneesh and interviewing all the, you know, the hundreds of people who were members. And, and so the book is about Rajneesh's journey and how he became who he was, my journey in terms of dealing with him and learning about myself and what happened with the whole group. And it was uh, both... I think an exploration of the potential of these groups to change consciousness and to do things that are quite remarkable uh, therapeutically, personally, socially, and at the same time, the danger, uh, because the group became incredibly authoritarian, and if not a Jonestown-like group, a group that actually did significant physical harm to a number of people and, and might have done more. So the book is both a... Uh, an exploration of the possibilities and also a cautionary tale. So what's interesting about all this to me uh, is uh, how your life as a whole has unfolded through a series of explorations at the frontiers of mind-body health, of wanting to help people, as the firefighter said, and wanting to be where the action is. 
But taking genuine risks, I mean genuine, both professional and actually physical risks, uh, putting yourself where the action is, uh, really at the frontiers of it. And then the skill piece, which is particularly extraordinary, is to have done this with a balance that has enabled you, uh, having walked through all of this, to be such a sustained, credible source of work on mind-body health, work on nutrition, work with trauma, work with cancer, work with depression. Many people, as you and I both know, lose their way in those explorations and, uh, and, uh, and don't have the capacity to, uh, to report objectively on both the pathologies of these issues as well as on their potential. And, and it seems to me that you've had that capacity to put yourself where the action is, to put yourself in extreme situations, to talk about what works and what the contribution may be, but also what the pathologies are, what the, the, the negative Thank you. Are. I want to keep you yeah. close to me always. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd like to open this up now. Uh, hey, Adam. Glad you're here. Welcome. Uh, Hi. Just, uh, just want to open this up. I just, um, I know uh, so many questions, but I would like to hear more about your work in Gaza. Sure. Um, we were going to go, and, but the border's closed. The Israeli government has closed the border, and it, it appears to be very, very firmly closed. So I've been feeling uh, just a sadness and a, uh, a poignancy of the situation. Uh, I started going into Gaza, I started working with Israelis and Palestinians six years ago. And the, the occasion was two letters, two emails rather, I'm still old-fashioned, old I think of them as letters, two emails that simultaneously said the same thing. Uh, one from an Israeli psychologist, the other from a Palestinian psychologist. And they said, we are very highly skilled, we are very good at dealing with individuals, we are also, incidentally, good at working with families and groups, and we are totally overwhelmed by the present situation. This is about two years into the second intifada. Um, we've seen what you've done in Kosovo, where we've trained 600 people and our work is central to the community mental health system. Um, would you come here and train us? And each one of these emails was essentially saying the same thing. People didn't know each other at all. So I thought, that's, that's a sign. Uh, I was looking for a place where we would do this international work next, and it was really a choice at that point between Afghanistan and working with Israelis and Palestinians. And I felt, because uh, the Afghan government had expressed an interest in us, in us coming, and I really felt that these two letters and something about it, partly my being Jewish, I'd never been to Israel, uh, partly because that, that so much in the world depends on what happens there. Uh, and partly because it's in some ways, even though Afghanistan is obviously a huge challenge, because it's, it's, it's a huge place, as well as utterly chaotic, it, it felt like more of a challenge. Uh, and it also felt in some way geographically a little bit more manageable too. Uh, but it was really just, that's where I wanted to be. So I went and we started a program in Israel and uh, then, and also one in Gaza, and the way it happens 
is we, I would, the first time I went, I went by myself. And I went to visit these two psychologists. And I also found a third person, uh, a psychiatrist in Gaza, who I'd, whose stuff, whose writings I'd read. And I went to visit each one and uh, went into Gaza, which is one of the most destitute and dismal places on the planet. Uh, it's uh, just a narrow strip of land, a million and a half people living there, totally jammed together, uh, very polluted, very, uh, just it feels dark most of the time, lots of garbage around, poverty all over. Uh, and I went to visit and visited the Gaza Community Mental Health Program, was taken around, and just became, uh, the first, second day I was there, we went to a hospital in Khan Yunus, which is the southern part. And in Khan Yunus, you could be on the streets of Khan Yunus, and at that point, the Israeli settlements were still there. And you look from this absolute slum to this beautiful village you know, with the red roof, the nicely tiled houses, and the greens, and the swimming pool, and of course the concertina wire and the armed soldiers around it. So there's this enormous contrast. And we went in the hospital uh, to visit a seven-year-old boy who'd been shot, uh, apparently by an Israeli sniper in front of his house, shot in the leg. And we were there and um, talking with the boy, and the boy's father was there with him. And so... I was with a young Palestinian psychologist, and he introduced me, and he translated for me, and the, the, the father was saying, how could this have happened to my boy? He's such a good student, as if somehow that would protect him from what was happening. So we, I, I taught them soft belly, I taught them meditation, uh, you know, I just sort of worked with the father and the son. And then we went out on the corridor, and uh, in the corridor were two high school boys in uniforms. And they were going, this was before Hamas took over. This was Fatah, so it was still mostly a, even though much more religious than the West Bank, still at least nominally a secular society. And I, uh, I said to my uh, interpreter, I said, what, what's going on with those two guys over there? He said, I don't know. I said, well, can we go over and talk with them? He said, okay. So we went over and started talking. And I said to this one boy, uh, what are you saying? He said, well, that's my cousin in there, that little boy you've just been visiting. And I was saying uh, to my friend that I cannot wait till I'm 18 so that I can become a martyr, so that I can strap explosives on and go and try to kill Israelis as a suicide bomber. I thought, this is not Hamas headquarters. This is you know, the corridor of a hospital with two schoolboys. Um, but he was kind of goofy looking, this kid. So I, his friend was much better put together. So I said, well, what do you think to his friend? And he spoke, he spoke uh, apparently in very incomplete sentences. And he said, I am in complete agreement with my friend. Uh, there is nothing that we can do that will be more important in advancing the cause of the Palestinian people. Bro, I thought, this is where I want to work. <laughs> because here's, here's what's going on, and here's the level of injury that I could see in that teacher and his child, and here's the level of 
um, danger to, the, to themselves, as well, but much more to themselves. The joke in Gaza is that uh, when, we, when we shoot at Israelis, we never hit anything. When we shoot at each other, we kill five times as many people as we want to. Because they're not, it's not like there's a, you know, a, 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 you know, a, a kind of fair struggle going on. Anyway, um, so I began to work there to make a long story short. Um, I started working. We found someone who really liked our work. Uh, it turned out to be the psychologist who wrote me the letter from the West Bank. He moved to Gaza. Now, how 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 often does that happen? Just about never. So he was there, and he became our first contact, and he began to introduce me to people. So I began to have meetings, and when I go somewhere like Gaza, and I did the same thing in Israel, I meet with people. So I would come and say, Michael, you're in charge, and I would tell you what I'm doing and what we have to offer, and I'd show you the data from Kosovo, and I'd teach you a meditation technique, and you might look at me as if I was crazy. You know, uh, First of all, crazy for being in Gaza. What is anybody who doesn't have to be here? What, what's he doing here? But then also, you know, how could this work? You know, this is not, you know, this is strange stuff. And are people going to do But people got it. And what we learned very quickly is that we couldn't ally ourselves with any one group. And instantly we learned the same thing in Israel. Um, in what we did in Gaza, the guy who was our original coordinator was working out of a hospital, but we didn't work with that hospital as our sponsor. We were going to work with the Ministry of Health, which at that time was run by Fatah, and everybody said, first of all, um, most, most, aside from the fact that they're corrupt, they're totally inefficient. They can't organize themselves. They'll never be able to organize a training. So I said, okay, and then we wanted to work with another very prestigious organization that wanted to work with us, and many of the NGOs, the local NGOs, said, no, they're snobs. Don't work with So we got the message. We set up our own little organization, uh, which has two staff. They were part-time at that point. And we found this one psychologist left. He introduced us to another who's an absolute gem, who combines being a, a, a wonderful clinician with being a very good administrator and a superb diplomat. He gets along with everybody. And everybody, everybody likes it. It's not, he's not a big shot, but he's just a guy who gets along with everybody. He's a very decent guy. So that team, those two people, but mostly Jamil, began to introduce, when I would come on subsequent visits, now I would bring a staff member with me, an administrative staff, would introduce me to other people. When the time came for us to do a training, and we had place for 90 people, we had about 300 applicants for the training. And so we did a training, um, and we uh, worked totally through interpreters, and we trained people in mind-body medicine, meditation, several forms of meditation, guided imagery, movement, dance, written exercises, drawings, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. We did an initial training of six days. Uh, people were astonished by what happened in the training. We had some a few, one rough moment, very interesting rough moment in which. Uh, I was doing a shaking and dancing, a meditation I got from Rajneesh. Uh, and we had cleared it with Jamil ahead of time, the music. We were using Jimmy Cliff, uh, the reggae music for the dancing. And all of a sudden, my interpreter started shouting. I knew I hadn't said anything. So I said uh, to Jamil, what's, what's going on? He said, well, he's saying this is against our religion. 
And I said, Jamil, please translate for me. I said, forget about it. You guys go ahead and keep shaking and dancing. We'll talk about this afterwards. So we shook and danced, and then we had a big conclave. I had nine of my international faculty there from the U.S. and Kosovo. I had a couple of our staff there. And we, uh, plus 90 people, plus the translators, we had a discussion. And we had a discussion about whether this was okay or not okay. And... um, And then we said we would all think about it. And I said, well, if that music is not okay, could somebody give me music that is okay? And so this guy with a psychiatrist with a very long beard, clearly Hamas, uh, said, yes, I will provide the music for tomorrow. I said, great. So we went back, met among ourselves. I came back and I said the next day, I said, well, I have to say that on the one hand, the translator was out of line for speaking his own feelings when he was translator. On the other hand, I respect those feelings, and I want to invite the translator back in to be part of our group again. And uh, as far as the music goes, we've changed the music, and Dr. So-and-so is going to provide the music. So people said that that was the turning point for them. That was when, not that they didn't like the work, what we were teaching them before, but they said to us, even though we thought the translator was out of line, we would have had to side with him. This is is the climate there. We would have to side with him because we are an Islamic society and we, you know, cannot, if you had kicked him out, we would not have been able to continue. But because you brought him back in, because you listened to all of us, we understand that you're for real, that you mean what you say, that you're not somebody who makes promises and says he's going to listen and then doesn't pay any attention, that you really respect us as a people. I was very moved by that. The next night, we finishing up, we had a party, and we had dancing. And we had a, I think we, I don't I think we had a, a, a lamb. We either have a lamb or a goat or something at the party. This is our first training. And the bearded guy came up to me and asked me to dance. <laughs> and we danced together. And only men dance in this setting. If women dance, they have to dance separately. It's kind of for the orthodox shoes. They, they have to dance separately. So he danced with me. And afterwards he said to me, I have never danced in public in my life, not even at my own wedding. I dance with you out of respect for you. I said, oh my God. So that's Gaza. At this point, we have about 60 or 70 of those 90 people. We gave them an advanced training where we taught them how to lead the same kind of small group that they'd been in. Uh, We then gave them another advanced training, which we call a leadership training, partly because they really needed work that training happened in the middle of the Civil War. Not by that's a whole other story. Um, and those people, over the last about 40, 50, maybe 50, 55 of those 90 people, have led 500 10-week-long small groups. So 5,000 people have had intensive exposure to our work. People of every age, every political party. Um, you know, little children down to three, four years old, adolescents, uh, people with amputations, blind people, 
old people with chronic illness, psychotic people in the hospital, uh, the staffs of all these different programs. Every time they, they do a 10-week group, the group ends. A couple weeks later, they start another 10-week group. And they've also used our method individually and in classrooms with 15 to 20,000 other people. And we, up until recently, when it became politically impossible, we had a mind-body radio show every week in Gaza. One of our leaders there, who's the head of the Department of Psychology, uh, who did 18 months in an Israeli prison, and three of his brothers have been killed in conflict with Israel, he was leading a mind-body program and teaching mind-body skills to the whole population of Gaza. So, And now we're just getting set to go back in and have our Gaza team, with our help, train 150 more people in Gaza. So that's the next step in our work. And it's, I, I, I actually brought a packet of stuff. You can, other people can look at them. You two, I have some stuff that we're describing some of the work in Gaza. But it's just, it's amazing. I mean, it's, it's really, I mean, I'm, I'm, I sort of sometimes have to pinch myself when I go back in there and I see what we're doing or I meet the people or I see how much they've changed, how much less angry they are and less crazed they are. Um, one other story I'll tell you, because uh, it's, and we, we measured it. You know, we study all this scientifically, so there's less anger and more optimism, more hope for the future. Um, the last time I was there, I just went in for a couple days because our major work was a joint Israeli-Palestinian training to teach the leadership from both sides, first of all, to work with them together and also to teach them how to use our techniques with small children to give them more information about that. And adolescents do. But anyway, I was visiting in Gaza. We went and visited a number of these groups that are ongoing. And one of them was a group for uh, teenage boys. And uh, the leader was a school psychologist. And he, uh, he said, I want you to come to my group. Everybody wants, they're so proud of what they're doing. It's really quite beautiful. So I want you to come to my group and I want you to hear what this boy Ahmed has to say. Is it great? So I came to the group. We do a check-in. Everybody says how they're doing, who they are. Ahmed said, um, uh, our leader said that I should speak for a longer period because he wanted me to tell you my story. So this is my story. He said, um, several months ago, I was uh, with a friend of mine and uh, where there were Israeli troops. And I don't know what they were doing there. He didn't, didn't say exactly. He said, and the Israeli troops fired and they killed my friend. And I was there and his body was in pieces and there was blood all over and his face was pale. And that was my terrible experience that I had. I went back to school and I couldn't concentrate. I couldn't sleep at night. Uh, I would have nightmares. I'd see my friend. I'd have images that would come to me of what had happened to him. Uh, it was on my mind all the time. And my teacher suggested I come to this group. So I came to the group, and uh, we first did a meditation, the first, the same, just soft belly, relaxation. And he said, I felt relaxed, a little bit relaxed for the first time in three months. And he said, that was very good. And I began to do that every day, several times a day. This is, you know, people talk about compliance. This is not about compliance. This is about somebody learning something that's useful that he wants to use. So I did it, I did it several times a day, and I started to sleep a little bit better. 
And then we did some drawings the second session. And I was able to tell everyone in the group for the first time what I was experiencing and how terrible I felt and about my lack of concentration and how I had these nightmares. He said, then in the fourth group, we did a guided image. And the image came to me. We were looking for our inner guide, and many of you may have done this image. He said, an inner guide came to me, and first it was my grandfather, and he was telling me that I was a good boy. And that was very reassuring, because he loved me, and I loved him, and I felt, helped me feel stronger. And then the Quran came to me. And the image that came was statements about um, being peaceful and caring for others. And he said, that was very important to me. Because one thing that I hadn't yet told anyone, that I didn't tell them until after this image that I'm telling you now, is that after my friend died, I used to go out almost every day and throw stones at the Israeli soldiers because I wanted them to kill me. He said, then in the third image that came to me of the inner guide, my friend came to me. And my friend said to me, don't throw stones at the Israeli soldiers. Your dying will not honor me. What will honor me is for you to live a long life and have children and treat them with the love that you have for me and to die as an old man and join me then. He said, and that was the last time I went out to throw stones. So, what a beautiful thing. Jim Gordon, thank you for being with us at the New School. Thank you.